0: It was a momentous election that we're still sort of navigating through. And in order to do that, we thought we would bring in some experts on this episode of Behind the Headlines. Hey, it's Eric Hulkerin. And today we'll be talking to Malachi Barrett and Emily Lawler, both of whom who cover politics and elections here in the state of Michigan to help figure out what exactly is going on and what is the path forward?
1: The Trump campaign seems to be hoping that they can somehow change that, but I, I think it's gonna be really, really difficult to change that math.
0: So let's get going. Emily is here, Malachi is here, and as always, my co-host, Vice President of Content for Live, John Heiner. How are you, my friend? It depends, what day is it, Eric? I um, have no idea, actually. <laughs> it, it feels
2: like I know it's been a week since the election, but it feels like one really long day uh, with, you know, in, in journalism, we, we have stories that we write and then we kind of retop them and we retop them until something's resolved. And, and the story just keeps kind of getting retopped. And it's it's the thing where I'm trying to apportion my attention to what matters, but it's hard to sort out what's real and what's really going to be consequential from the outcome of this election, which of course looks like Joe Biden has won. Um, but we're, we're dealing with some shattered norms too. Uh, we've got a norm-busting president, and why do we think he's going to be any different in his exit? So there's a lot of things unpacked, not just with the national election, but statewide here in Michigan. Uh, we knew it was a critical swing state, and, it, and of course it ended up being so. And it was a part of uh, a trend of some blue wall states flipping that, that really helped turn the election. So I thought it'd be great today and, and an obvious thing to come back to, to have some of our um, crack political reporters back on to Behind the Headlines and to talk about the issues, uh, the unresolved issues, and what is resolved in the election, both nationally and in Michigan. So today we're joined by MLive's lead political reporter, Emily Lawler, and uh, state and national political writer, Malachi Barrett, both veterans of Behind the Headlines. Welcome back to the show
1: hey thanks for having
2: us happy to be here great to have you back and just you know we could start globally and work kind of down to some specifics but snapshot right now um please separate the the sizzle from the stake here it looks like joe biden is the victor he's acting like the victor and we're seeing some um of course um stoked by donald trump but we're seeing a lot of resistance to the idea that the election is settled so, for the sake of our listeners, Emily and Malachi, talk a little bit about what we can expect to happen, what's likely to happen, and, and really what other bumps in the road there might be.
1: Well, who knows what we can expect? <laughs> but I think that you know, from from where the candidates sit right now, it's pretty clear that um, Joe Biden has clinched the 270 electoral college votes uh, that he'll need to secure the presidency. Um, you know, the Trump campaign seems to be hoping that they can somehow change that, but I, I think it's going to be really, really difficult to change that math, right? Um, it's, it's not necessarily a, a matter of that there's still a lot of states up in, up in the balance. It's not necessarily a matter of any states really being close enough where, um, you know, a challenge or a recount is likely to gain Trump enough votes to to flip the the state into his column? Um, Mathematically, I think you'd much rather be Joe Biden right now.
3: Yeah, I think it's important to note that, you know, Joe Biden has at this point, 290 electoral votes. He has several million. And we're looking at a situation where he's leading in several states by, you know, several thousand votes, tens and hundreds of thousands in some cases. And, you know, recounts, can result in in votes kind of shifting between one side or another, but it, it generally doesn't just work out for one candidate. Both both candidates usually gain or, or lose a little bit, and you know not in the order of magnitude that would flip a lot of these states. In Michigan, for example, we're looking at you know 147 thousand vote difference. When Michigan's recount in 2016 was conducted, it was a partial recount, but there were only a couple hundred votes that that changed there before it was stopped. So you know, the Republican uh, Party is trying to collect uh, evidence of, of voter fraud. There are people who report that to them. The president um, is trying to find these cases around the country that, you know, could sow some doubt about the election results. But I think what we're seeing right now are, you know, a lot of the normal kind of clerical errors and mistakes that get made on elections when we're, you know, having the canvassing process go through and, and finding some of these things. But I don't think there's been any legitimate, uh, you know, instances where we're gonna see a substantial number of votes change hands in this case?
2: Well, because, you know, and what I'm hearing is some of these legal challenges, they're not even filling out the proper forms, they're, they're kind of sloppily put together, they're, they almost look like stalling maneuvers or just to get into court, and also to the court of public opinion, uh, you know, because in each state they seem to have a different beef and there's no coordinated, I mean, they're trying to suggest this like a nationwide fraud conspiracy, when in fact, you know, the states run their elections, um, several of these states have Republican governors, the secretaries of state, I know in Georgia, uh, the Secretary of State's Republican, and he's, he's taken umbrage at the idea that, you know, that he, sh- he should roll over for Trump, um, you know, because the, the election integrity is so important. But what I'm looking at is some of these things that the Trump campaign and Trump himself are stoking up is almost like after a baseball game is over, filing a protest and saying balls and strikes in the third inning, if it had been called differently, you know, that inning would have ended differently. Maybe the game would have ended differently. But as you know, in sports, they never overturn these things. Um, I do think that this is sort of a crash course for anyone who cares about how American elections work and, you know, just, from the standpoint, like take Michigan as an example, Emily. You know, you had Benson on a uh, Facebook Live um, the day I believe it was the day after the election, or maybe it was Friday, but it was people were banging on the glass at the TCF Center when they were still counting votes, and I thought that with the timing on that was fantastic. But she also she talked about the processes and 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 the safeguards that are in place and in election integrity. So why don't we just recap that a little bit for our listeners and what what safeguards are in place and. How normal is everything we're seeing in a normal election cycle anyways?
1: Yeah, pr- uh, pretty darn normal, I think, is the consensus of all the elections experts, uh, including the Secretary of State that I've talked with uh, in the aftermath of the election here. But I think that a lot of people don't realize that, you know, you you tune in to your TV on election night, you see a result, and you think, okay, that person won. Um, but what you're really seeing is sort of people calling the result, right? So either um, maybe CNN or the Associated Press, which we use, or um, all, all the networks, the New York Times, are all making their own calls. They're all making these projections based on data. Um, and this year, those calls were very conservative. Um, I think that people uh, really held on to, to those calls at the major news networks for um, longer than we've seen certainly in the past um, to avoid sort of a, a declaring a winner that didn't end up being a winner, right? So. Uh, you know, those, those things are kind of the first step of the electoral process um, as far as vote counting goes. So they've counted those votes, um, but basically they get double checked a bunch of times. So the um, County Board of Canvassers, all, all, in Michigan, we have a super decentralized elections system. So all of the local uh, jurisdictions, local townships and cities conduct their own elections, collect their own votes, transmit them to the county. Um, And then the county um, has a board of canvassers that has to go through and sort of certify all these results, make sure there's no obvious discrepancies, make sure all these totals are adding up in terms of uh, what votes are coming in from where. Um, And then the counties report these results up to the state. And um, same thing, the state is also going through and canvassing. There's a board of state canvassers um, that goes through and double checks all of that as well. So there's sort of a three levels of verification. And uh, to insinuate that um, you know one local clerk is corrupt <laughs> would also be to say that everyone who's checking that local clerk's work is corrupt, um, which is just frankly really hard to string together. Um, it would also be really hard to string a hack together because of all the different um, systems that these local governments are using. Um, So really, there is a lot of redundancy and a lot of safeguards uh, built in in place, I think, with how these elections are conducted. And of course, um, you know, Michiganders have trusted the results of their elections uh, in years past, these exact same processes. Um, I would point to Malachi mentioned that there's a 140 plus uh, thousand vote margin in the presidential race this year. Um, in 2016, there was a 10,700 vote margin, and everyone <laughs> accepted the results of that um, election, after a, a partial recount, which he mentioned. Um, but there's basically there's there's no evidence that that the system itself is faulty at this point.
3: So too that the the canvassing boards are, are bipartisan at the state and the county level. So you're looking at you know bipartisan clerks across the whole state, and then that goes up to a process where there's an equal number of Democratic and Republican uh, representatives who are checking over all that work as well.
2: Yeah, you start to go down the rabbit hole with some of this stuff. Like they use tabulating machines, right? It's not like a human is sitting there with a pad and he's making little scratch marks, you know, one for Biden, two for Trump. These are tabulating machines. And then so then people say, yeah, but who sets up the software on the tabulating? You can start to go down the rabbit hole on this stuff. Uh, Let's dial the lens down a little bit to some of the trends we saw in this election have you guys speak to that um it's it it's pretty well known by now if you accept the election results that the the blue wall states that hillary clinton lost in 2016 uh came back around with the exception of ohio for biden this time and they were they were close in, in in pennsylvania you know it was very close um but he he flipped pennsylvania michigan and wisconsin and just from a michigan perspective what you saw here both with how they ran their campaigns and the issues they ran on What do you think the differences were um, between 2016 and and 2020 that, and of course this is after four years of Trump incumbency too, not four years of Obama incumbency, but what were some of the factors you thought and what, if anything surprised you here in Michigan?
3: I think the most obvious thing is just the amount of time that was spent on Michigan on trying to court Michigan voters, trying to make Michigan a more central part of the conversation than it was in 2016 you know, there's been, you know, gallons and gallons of ink spilt over how Democrats uh, failed to recognize that Michigan was going to be competitive in 2016 and, you know, started a little bit too late on trying to come back here in the last days of the election. Um, you know, that did not happen this time all the way back into the Democratic primary. There was a focus on Michigan and a focus on Detroit and Wayne County and these Democratic strongholds that um, they needed to turn out. Uh, you know, about, about a year ago, July 2019, all the candidates were in Detroit for the DNC debate. Joe Biden is, you know, outside of Coney Island, Detroit, and he's telling reporters, I'm going to win Michigan, I'm going to win Pennsylvania, I'm going to win Wisconsin, and I'm going to win Ohio. And that's been his, you know, mission, his main pitch. We, we talk about electability, this whole argument of who can beat Trump, who can you know, get this kind of blue wall reassembled. That, that's been Joe Biden's mission from day one. Obviously, he didn't win Ohio, but he, he made good on those other three. And, uh, you know, his focus in Michigan was was rev, uh, really focused on, you know, his past relationship to in the state. Uh, he talked a lot about how he helped Detroit through its bankruptcy. Uh, Emily and I did a story around uh, the DNC uh, when he was finally named the nominee about the focus on the auto industry and how he came and, and helped you know save michigan's auto industry uh, during the obama administration when he was vice president and really there was a huge focus on the virus michigan uh, you know was among some of the hardest hit states early in the pandemic um, we, we've since you know weathered some of those issues although we're all dealing with a bounce back now uh, and and he you know recognized the impact that it, that had on on uh, detroit uh, southeast Michigan where a lot of the, the outbreaks initially started and he kind of articulated his plan for getting that under control and you know getting the economy back on track so from the Biden perspective I mean that that was kind of his main focus getting coronavirus under control you know I've been here for you before in hard economic times and I'll be here for you again and I'm not overlooking some of these voters that felt disenfranchised by the Democratic Party last time around.
2: Now that's the- Good point. I think his electability, he also just had a higher electability factor. I think uh, I read an interesting analysis yesterday saying it, based on how the vote turnouts occurred and looking at polling. The other challengers for the Democratic presidential nomination uh, that he defeated this summer probably would have fared worse. I mean, they probably wouldn't have taken Arizona or um, they might not have taken Pennsylvania and that, you know, he was seen as, you know, some people thought it would maybe a compromise or or this, or this the safe choice. But he was able to unite uh, factions that didn't come out before. Uh, we talked about this in a previous podcast uh, when we were talking about the James Peters race, which I want to come back to in a minute anyways. But uh, what were the differences in the black vote turnout this time for Biden versus Hillary Clinton in Michigan?
1: Yeah, Malachi and I dug into that a little bit um, in the Last weekend, I think. <laughs> Trying to lose track of all time, time, right? Blended together for me. Um, but yeah, I mean, Democrats had a huge, huge emphasis on turning the black vote. And one thing that I thought was uh, really interesting was that they weren't just putting that emphasis in our major urban centers. Um, you know, you sort of think about Flint and Detroit, and of course, they did um, put big emphasis on, on those cities. Um, But, you know, I talked to Lieutenant Governor Garland Gilchrist about this, um, and he he said that he thinks one of the big underreported stories of the cycle is that, you know, everyone's saying that the suburbs are uh, becoming more democratic, they are becoming more democratic if you look at um, places like Oakland County, Kent County. Um, And there's been a lot of talk about this uh, sort of suburban white woman um, who can't stand Trump kind of vote, right? (laughs) But um, one of the things that the lieutenant governor pointed out to me was that a huge part of that story is the diversification of the suburbs. Um, Those suburbs are not sort of the, as he put it, the leave it to beaver (laughs) sort of places that... Uh, that you imagined uh, 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years ago. So I think that um, you know they really did put some focus on talking to Black voters where they were um, in some of those suburban areas, and and pulling them into the process in a way that maybe they haven't been engaged before. Um, obviously, to to Democrats' advantage, I, I think that um, perhaps famously I uh, attended a rally in 2016 where. Trump predicted that if he won and then ran again, he would get 95% of the black vote. Um, that did not even come close to happening, of course, I think, as, as everyone.
2: Just a little bit uh, off there. So the, when we were on here talking about the Peters-James race. Uh, one thing we talked about was how much better James was running against Peters than he did against Stabenow, how close it was going to be. And boy, that was the one that on election night or even the days after uh, was a real toss up. And I don't think John James has conceded yet. If he did, I missed that headline. Uh, I think he's kind of following Trump's lead. But that one was a lot closer than the presidential race. And just for your guys' insight, um, does this, you know, was this what you expected? Does this show that Peters is weak or the Democrats hold on the Senate, which has been a long time thing? And Michigan has been weakened? What do you guys think uh, uh, that race portends?
3: One, one of the big questions in this race, and I think we chatted about this in one of our previous episodes, was, you know, could we envision a scenario where Biden wins Michigan and Gary Peters loses a Senate seat? And, you know, a lot of the political experts that we talked to said, yeah, it's, it's very possible. I think Democrats were banking on Joe Biden leading this massive surge in turnout that would help all the down-ballot candidates and, and kind of, you know, raise all the ships Uh, Up on election day, and while Biden certainly did better in Michigan than Hillary Clinton, he he picked up um, around uh, 525 thousand more votes, and that's nothing to scoff at. But Trump did a lot better too; he he picked up uh, 367 thousand votes, and I think a lot of Democrats underestimated uh, Trump's ability to to get out the vote in the state. And so on election day, we're we're watching this, you know, the results come in, and ultimately, uh, Peters won by. Uh, around 88,000 votes, I, I think, as the last time I checked, um, which is a lot tighter than the presidential race, uh, obviously not as tight as the 11,000 votes that separated Trump from Clinton in mm-hmm. 16, but still a lot closer than I think a lot of Democrats expected that to be. But, you know, at the same time, they recognized that this was going to be a competitive race. You know, James was a solid candidate. He had a lot of money behind him. He had a really clear, strong message, um, it, you know, that was able to kind of go toe to toe with with Gary. Um you know, interesting to note that in places where uh, Biden was able to flip counties like like Kent and some of that is the demographics that we talked about. You know, Biden being able to pick up uh, more votes in kind of the, the Kentwood area, East Grand Rapids area, was able, able to actually flip Kent County around Grand Rapids uh, for the first time. And uh, Peters wasn't able to do that. And there were some other places where Peters ran a little bit behind uh, by margin of victory. Um, but you're right. Uh, as of what is it today, <laughs> November 10th, uh, John James still hasn't conceded. He's uh, you know questioning some election irregularities, quote unquote, um, hasn't necessarily made allegations of fraud, but seems to be taking a similar line that that Trump and a lot of Republicans throughout the country are taking. That you know we should look into this, look into some of these issues that are being brought up. I think he's in a similar spot to Trump where you know, be it a recount, be it some legal challenges, there's probably just not enough votes there to flip that race. And and pretty much everybody has moved on at this point and recognized Gary as the winner.
2: The difference between James and Trump is that James is not living in a government-owned house that he's going to have to be evicted from if he, if he doesn't acknowledge the election results. But uh, Emily, I think you were going to comment on this as well.
1: Well, I hope it doesn't come to that. <laughs> but I think that... Um, yeah, that race definitely proved a, a few things to, to Michigan or about Michigan voters, I should say. Um, and frankly, I think James is a really good candidate. I think that uh, he ran closer to Stabenow than people had expected. Um, and I think that he ran uh, closer to Gary Peters, perhaps, than some had expected. Um, and if I were Democrats, I'd be working on uh, building that, that seat up a little bit in the next six years because... Um, You know, Gary Peters, it was pretty clear, came in with um, sort of like a name recognition deficit, which to be fair, Gary Peters is a very unrecognizable name (laughs) or a very common name, Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I think that the Democrats should be putting a little bit of a, a focus on there if they want to um, keep that seat. And then I'm curious to see what the future of John James is. I mean, he resonated with a lot of people. Um, he's ran twice for for statewide office and not been successful. But I do sort of question if he if he were willing to start with a you know not a statewide office, maybe a. Uh, well, congressional district wouldn't really make sense for his area, or uh, but maybe a state house district. I'm not sure where he goes from here, but I, I do think there's some sense that in another race in another year, he could have been pretty successful.
3: I just want to uh, bring up a quick anecdote too from from the yeah. campaign trail. We you know we just got done talking about how Joe Biden spent so much time and energy on trying to motivate black voters. I was at an event uh, that Gary Peters held with Reverend L. Sharpton about a week before the election. I think it was on like that Thursday before. Um, and I was, you know, talking with folks and, and they had said, you know, we we really haven't seen much of Gary in Detroit. We haven't seen him come out to our communities and, and try to make the case, you know, in this election year. Um, and, and they didn't really know much about him. I mean, there's been a lot of discussion about how Joe Biden needs to kind of make good on some of the promises that he made to this community now that he has uh, the power to do so. And I think there's a similar expectation for Gary that, you know, Hey, you came out of a tough race. You're going to have to really prove it now to voters that you're Mm -hmm. going to be here and work on our behalf. uh, Or, you know, he may have some, some trouble in the future. Uh, Detroit actually is an area where James did a little bit worse this time compared to his first campaign, which is a little interesting considering he's a, business owner in, in Detroit I just also want to note that uh, Biden earned slightly fewer votes than Clinton in the city of Detroit even though he did better in Wayne County overall so mm-hmm. maybe that was, you know, I
2: city. think we could spend some time looking at the whole coattails effect and trying to tease out what part of this was just you know Biden's appeal versus you know Democrat I know what the Democrats wanted going into the election uh, from the. US Senate all the way you know through they wanted to gain house seats in the US House. They wanted to take the legislature of Michigan. And, you know, even though Biden cut into what we call Trump country and did better in McComb and some other areas, it didn't seem to translate. Alyssa Slotkin, I mean, she was in, uh, in Haley Stevens around Detroit. They both almost got beat. They hung on, but barely. And like I said, Peter's barely won. And so, you know, what did that mean for Michigan and you know governance in Michigan when the Democrats were looking at hoping they could swing the House and, and you know get that behind Whitmer too, but none of that happened even nationally.
1: No, those coattails were pretty darn short in Michigan um, for Joe Biden. So obviously there was a big emphasis on uh, sort of swinging things down ticket. I guess let's talk successes first. Uh, Democrats took two seats on the the State Board of Education or kept seats on the Board of Education, um, which is sort of considered a a purist election. People look at that one a lot because a lot of people are voting generically on, is this person a Democrat or is this person a Republican without knowing a lot about them? Sorry to whoever I've offended with that. Um, <laughs> but in any case, uh, State Board of Education win. University boards, complete mixed bag. Uh, Republicans uh, kind of split a couple of those boards. Um, the Democratic Party put up Brian Masalam again for Michigan State's uh, Board of Trustees uh, statewide race. And th- I think there's a lot of latent people who are still upset with him for how the board uh, handled the Nassar situation. Um, that did not pan out for them. A Republican won one of those seats. A, a Democrat won one of those seats. Um, solemn was not a, a winner, did not get that, that re-election nod. Um, university boards, uh, Republican uh, Sarah Hubbard got a spot on the University of Michigan board. Uh, Republican Terlin Land, who ironically ran against Peters in uh, right. six years ago, <laughs> won a seat on the Wayne State board. Um, and then, of course, in the legislature, um, the Republicans retained control. There was a couple seats that flipped around, but they actually retained the exact same margin. Um as they had coming in. So in the
2: Supreme it, Court.
1: Oh, yeah, sorry. Supreme Court was a big win for Democrats. I'm sorry, I <laughs> skipped over that one. Um, but yeah, definitely. Um, Bridget Mary McCormick uh, and then Elizabeth Welch were both um, something that the Democrats had put a lot of effort into. Um, and that's always a hard race because they're technically nonpartisan races, um, and Democrats and Republicans nominate um, who, who they th- want to run for those positions. Um, so Democrats put a lot of messaging work into saying, don't forget to flip your ballot over. And when you get, when you get to the end of the partisan section, don't forget these two, or if you vote a straight ticket, um, don't forget to, that you still have to vote in the Supreme court race. And I think that that effort paid off, um, and Republicans didn't put as much of an emphasis on that race this time, um, which could have implications for, for Whitmer, especially as you look at things like the decision they recently made in the Supreme court, um, on her, the basis of her emergency powers, declaring one of those laws unconstitutional. Um, you know, I wouldn't think that she would have to worry as much about, um, a rebuke like that, um, under a democratically controlled Supreme court.
2: Okay. Malachi, um, in uh, 104 characters or less, (laughs) we're getting to the end of our, of our show here, but, um, both of you, actually, what are we going to see? I mean, you can separate Michigan from the national scene, but both in the national scene of Michigan, what are we going to see in the next week or two? Um, I know everybody's watching and waiting, and they, they have a sense of, like, who gets to make the call? When are we going to have some certainty? Uh, what do you think is going to happen in the next week or two here in the political landscape?
3: Well, as Emily walked us through, we've got a canvassing effort that's ongoing. The county board of canvassers will be done uh, on the 17th, and then that'll go to the state board of canvassers. For a review that'll take a couple of weeks as well. So first things first, we're waiting on final certified election results um, that will probably tweak some of the numbers that we're looking at just just a tiny bit. Um, of the state. Um, I think you're going to continue to see the president. Uh, you know, I don't know if rage is the right word. He's been tweeting in all caps a lot lately <laughs> uh, against the outcome of this, and continue to assert that um, you know there's there's been some malfeasance or uh trickery going on here. Um and you know, maybe that will manifest in some more protests. We saw uh, that happen in Michigan and across the country over the weekend, these these stop the steel rallies that occurred um had a very similar flavor actually, the lockdown, anti-lockdown protests that we saw at Michigan's capital capital throughout the summer. Mm-hmm. A lot of the same people involved and seems like kind of a natural extension of that. Political energy, uh this opposition political energy. Um, and I think, you know, we're, we're going to see that the GOP continue to collect some of these uh, these cases and incidents that they're raising uh, to the public's attention. Um, you know, it seems like largely the political establishment has accepted that, that Biden has won this election. Um, he's got his transition team in place. He named his coronavirus task force on Monday, um, has been having some meetings about the pandemic and the economic recovery. Um, so I think he's going to kind of continue to move full steam ahead on getting his transition in place.
2: Well, Emily, you, you, your
0: recap. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, I just was gonna say that the parties are looking at different goals over the next month or so here. Um, I think for Democrats, it's transitioning and also um, you know, winning over half the country or close to half the country that they didn't win over in the election, right? Mm-hmm. Um, And sort of throwing out some of those olive branches um, and trying to get those people on board for for what they're trying to accomplish and some of their agenda, especially when they don't have you know, a super strong, this wasn't a giant wave election with a huge mandate that this is the direction the country wants to go in. This was sort of a softer rolling wave (laughs) where um, Democrats claimed victory, um, perhaps uh, more technically than they or closely than they would have anticipated. Um, And I think for Republicans, the task ahead is deciding whether they're the Republican Party or the party of Trump. And, um, you know, I think it was surprising for a lot of people uh, to see it. people like Ron Romney McDaniel and Laura Cox um, sort of throw throw some steadfast Michigan Republicans like Clerk Tina Barton <laughs> under the bus as they were um, trying to allege these illeg- irregularities, which they're still alleging. They're still collecting um, allegations of voter- voting irregularities through a hotline. Um, you know, I, I think that whether or not they, they continue to pursue this past the point where, where it's clear it's not going to work, um, which I think some would argue has already passed, um, or, or if they, you know, drop this and move towards some healing themselves is going to determine, you know, what direction the, the Republican Party goes in from here.
2: I, you mentioned bipartisan. I, I thought I heard some bipartisanship mentioned, at least referenced, and we'll we'll have to come back to that if it happens. That will be another show in the future. Um, and uh, you know, as Leonard Cohen saying, "Democracy is coming to the USA." Um, let us know uh, when it fully arrives um, and, and come back and talk about it. But it's been. Uh, great having you on. Uh, a lot of unsettled things. And uh, I, I reserve to have you back in the near future uh, as uh, we get more developments. Obviously, a momentous election 2020. And appreciate all the work you've done and your insights. And thanks again for joining us on Behind the Headlines.
0: And there they go. A huge thanks to Emily Lawler and Malachi Barrett, both of whom uh, checked in to keep us up to date on what's happening in the state of Michigan as it relates to the fallout from the election. If you like what's going on in Behind the Headlines, there's a couple things you can do for John and I. One, you can like the episode, share the episode, and rate the episode wherever you listen to your podcasts. As always, I am Eric Halkrin, he is John Heiner, and this is Behind the Headlines.